Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. I'm going to pray. Let's jump into the message. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for our church house and say, Father, would you mold us? God, then in this place, it is about placing our eyes back upon the Creator and trusting that when our eyes are upon the Creator, the Creator creates in us. God, developing a life of depth, discipline, sacrifice, and sustainability. May it be said of the people here that that is who we are. People who are rooted deeply in lives with you. People who understand sacrifice and are willing to sacrifice. And those who live sustainably through all of those things. God, our eyes are on you this morning, creating us. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Really half-hearted amen, but that's good. Um, with that, we've been in a series, this is the very last week on the book of James. Um, if you've been here, uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to every week, or this is your first week, or you haven't listened to them all you, this afternoon, you know, if you want to go listen to eight sermons, that's typically what people do on Sunday afternoons. You can. They're all on podcasts, any podcast platform, fixate, PHX. Uh, but I want to encourage you, today is our last week, James part nine, and we're going to be focused on the verses in chapter, chapter five, verses seven. Through verse 20. Now, we're not going to read that quite yet because many of us, I like to really add emphasis on why we are talking about James. Personally, I think James is the best personification of really what we aspire to be in a church teaching, devoted to what practical lifestyle looks like of following Jesus from the lens of literally being a Jesus follower and somebody who had firsthand access as his half-brother to literally watching Jesus' life. Not only that, what I love about James is he has a very deep knowledge of Scripture. You see kind of laced in, he references, um, whether it's Proverbs or Psalms or different um, prophetic prophets of the Old Testament. We're going to spend a little bit of time. I think he's a very crystal clear example of what we really are hoping to become, which is a resilient disciple. I think a lot of the times what we want is we want to be a disciplined learner and we want to be a disciple of God, but the resiliency is a whole nother box to check. What do I mean by that? See, James was somebody who his life was absolutely hurdle after hurdle. Will you stay faithful? Hurdle after hurdle, cost after cost, sacrifice after sacrifice. Famine that was so bad they had to write letters out to other churches receiving offerings in hopes that they would get money to be able to feed their congregation. He's preaching to people who are starving in the pews. He's one of those who leads his church through persecution, but this persecution isn't like our persecution we know today or we like to call today in America Christian persecution. Christian American persecution is not persecution based off of scripture. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not. See, what we see is James literally, his life is sacrificed as he is martyred for his faith. And I want to say this to us today. I believe all of us are called to be a disciple of God. But part of that being a disciple is being resilient in the face of obstacle, in the face of pain, in the face of trial. And I believe he paints a vividly clear picture of that in this final passage we are going to talk about today. 
And so with that, I want to give you the title before we jump in. Outcomes, I'm calling this passage, chapter 5, 7 through verse 20, outcomes of a rooted life. Outcomes of a... I'm standing up here and I would say, all right, how many of us are living unrooted from God? Amen. Yeah, that's me. Right. Many of us, if we're in this room, we, would, we probably are at a place where we're like, I feel like I'm decently rooted or, you know, there's, there's some traction with, with God. But James, at the end of this, this is his final kind of just, just driving home points. I actually feel like this passage outlines three outcomes. Three outcomes of a life that is rooted in God. So without that, further ado, let's jump in. Or be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9. Do not complain. Brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophet who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. We're going to spend some time on this later. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear. It's, it's kind of funny. This is, I wanted to pause, but I just kept going, but it's fine. Verse 11, this thought kind of breaks, right? So 7 to 11, what we see is he's driving home this like, be patient, be patient. Suffer, but be patient, be patient. Trust like the farmer does. Trust that through suffering there is blessing. Patience, patience, patience. Then there's this shift, and this is kind of going to be the second part we're going to talk about. It says this. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's kind of two things that I'm framing around passages, and this is the second one. The effective prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. And the reason I'm framing it is because, once again, we have an example. Now, in the Bible, paraphrase it, it says, we count those blessed who endured. So that's like, that's, we're going to frame a lot of our thinking around that. Why? Because he says, we count those blessed who endured, be like Job. Then this particular statement, it says this, the effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. Look at Elijah. So those are our two things we're going to look at here in a little bit, but let's continue to read. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his souls from death and will cover a multiple or a multitude of sin. You know, it's fascinating, like I said, is I feel like this entire 13 verses is kind of like James being like, all right, I only, I'm going to close this out. Let me just get as all over the place as I can. 
So we start with patience and then we kind of trickle down like suffering and farmers and Job and, and make sure you're patient. And then there's a blessing and then it's like, okay, and then make sure that we don't like our yes and our yes and is no and our no is our no, but also pray a lot. And if you pray a lot, you'll, you'll be effective like Elijah was with rain, even though that's barely a tenth of the story. Oh, and by the way. Don't forget about the people who have strayed from the path, right? It's like, it's like James, were you like on Adderall during this one or what's going on, bud? And so it's funny though, because this is what I'm really trying to spend a lot of time on is there's three themes of thoughts of thought. And the first one really is that idea of we count those blessed who have endured. And then he introduces Job. Then the second theme of thought is the effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. And then he introduces Elijah. And then this last thought of going after the brethren who have erred in their ways. And so what I want to talk about are those three streams of thought. And specifically, I've kind of titled it this, three outcomes of rooted rhythms that come from James's final. Rhythms that come from these final verses. Now, many of us, right, we could sit here and say, okay, I have rooted rhythms. Yeah, but what are the outcomes of what they're producing? Many of us, if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing or what we're going to get in return for the doing, then most of the time the doing just won't last. But this is why I feel like this passage is important is James has hammered for the last four chapters, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But what he's doing now, though, is he's saying, okay, you can do this and do this and do this. But just so you know, there are outcomes to your doing. And I'm not sitting here outcomes because what we see from these examples is the outcomes are like, okay, is it worth the doing? But I believe it is. So with that, three outcomes of rooted rhythms that come from James's final verses. The first one is this. There is an increased measure of compassion, mercy, and blessing for the unwavering and patient person. The most common test we see over and over in scripture is that of patience. God's timing versus ours. God's heart of blessing in the Bible is more often than not shown to those who have weathered the test, stayed faithful, and remained planted in him in all season. Lordship comes down to control And the sooner we can release it, trust and trust it, the sooner the roots found in a life of righteousness will get to work producing a life that knows and walks in the mercy. They're having fun over there, huh? (laughs) Like, man, they're having a party over there. So I'll jump in over there. Way funner than listening to me. Anyway, I want to talk, though, because if we think about it, There's good news today as it pertains to patience and endurance. Because if you know, James 1 starts with that, right? Patient endurance having its perfect work. And this is a re-emphasis of sorts because what we see is patient endurance is going to become the test of the early church. How is it that a, a religious paper, it doesn't have money, weapons, or political power. How is it that that religion could reshape the modern world and expand its reach in a few hundred years to millions and millions of people? How is it that it can do this? In my opinion, it's patient endurance. See, here's what you have to understand about the witness of the early church is that through their sacrifice, there was something about them that made them so intriguing. They endure like the Christian faith 
was willing to do. You know, if you actually research uh, reasons, or uh, I should say things of torture um, in the New Testament, I wouldn't say that it would be something you should do in your spare time because it's grotesque, but some of the methods that Rome used to use on Christians, it's said that Nero hated Christians so much that instead of lighting torches for his nightly walks, they would pin Christians up in trees on posts, lighting them on fire to where he could walk at night and see. There's another method they said in Rome that they would kill animals, skin the animal, take the skin off, place it on Christians, and that would be what the Romans would hunt. Christians like animals. So once again, when we talk about patient endurance, it's one thing to be like, God, help me to endure. But it's another thing to be somebody who endures knowing your friend was lit on fire in a tree for an emperor to walk. To see animals skinned and the skin placed. Endurance and patience, there's a different work when you faced that problem and obstacle. What am I saying today? What you may not realize is this, is your endurance and your patience for a lot of the world that doesn't know endurance and patience is the very thing that brings them to God. How could you have the strength to keep going? It's because it wasn't your strength. So with that... We know the outcome of compassion and mercy for those who stay the course. So if I were to stand up here and say, all right, guys, how many of us want the mercy of God? All of us. Amen. How many of us want the compassion of God? Amen. How many of us want that blessing of God? Amen. You know, like we're all about that. Like we build everything about that. Like blessing, blessing, blessing. It's like he didn't talk about blessings this week. Mercy, compassion, and blessing. Job. It's like, why'd you have to do that, James? If you know anything about Job, it's actually funny. Historians believe, and I'm going to kind of plug one of my favorite authors here. His name is Bob Sorge, and he wrote a book on Job. It's a commentary called Pain, Perplexity, and Promotion, uh, uh, a study on the book of Job. What he believes is that Job is actually the very first book historically that was written. If you date the, the, um, the transcripts, you actually see that it is dated before any other transcripts. And so many believe Job is the first book. How many of you guys know Job is a great example to follow? It's like, yes, he's a great example. But what do we know about Job's life? He did nothing wrong. And everything went wrong. Think about that. If I walked up to you and said, hey, man... If you follow God and do nothing wrong, everything's going to go wrong for you. How many of us would be like, sign me up, man? I'm in. Sounds like an incredible ride. Job's, the first book is all about a man who literally, this is the synopsis. Job, the enemy say, but he's only righteous and holy because you've blessed him. Take your blessing and your provision away. I guarantee he'll walk away. God says, all right, that's fine. Test and try him. Loses all of his wealth. His family is killed. It says it gets so bad at one point that boils break out on his skin. And in order to get relief, he breaks clay jars and takes the shards of clay and scratches his boils to get relief. There are 42 chapters are all about the ordeal. You see that in the beginning, it's all about what happened to him. And then kind of in the middle parts, it's about what his friends are telling him to do because they're like, you had to have messed up. You had to have been dumb. You had to have said something about God. 
Over and over, 41 verses, we see the trial, we see the testing, we see the pain. And there is only, chapter 42 is not long enough. What do I mean by that? Is it's all of the blessing. 41 chapters, we have a problem, trial, friends that are not good friends, all this stuff. And then the very end, we've got 17 verses on blessing. And of those 17 verses, guess what? Only seven of them speak about that he walked in. You know what those seven verses say? He got double for his trouble. Seven verses that culminate the entire passage are all about how God restored his family, restored his riches, restored his health, and that he lived a long, happy, and fruitful life. Now think about it like this. If Job is 42 chapters... And of those 42 chapters, there's 1,070 verses. Only seven of the verses are about blessing that comes through trial. And the entirety of the book besides that is about... Like, I want the compassion, the mercy, and the blessing of Job, but I don't want none of the trial of Job. Seven out of 1,070. You know what the percentage is of that? A half a percent of a half a percent is about what God restored. The rest is about what could be blamed as God taking away what Job had to go through, the friends that weren't very good friends. At the very end of Job's life, if we went to him and say, was it worth it? He would say, yes, he was worth it. And all we focus on the entirety of the book is the pain that he went through. But I believe this is what I mean about compassion, mercy, and blessing is even though it may be the smallest microcosm of our life that we fully experience that as we walk through difficulty, I want to say this, what we will experience will trump anything we have gavering and faithful and true and consistent and steadfast. See, I believe Job in this passage, James is like, hey guys, let's be more like Job. And everybody in his church is shouting, absolutely not. But that's the beauty of why he chose that person. Is because the cost was great, but the compassion. The second point I have for you today is this. The prayer of a truly righteous person should accomplish much. Your prayer should put you out on the ledge of life, trusting it is he who keeps you above the waves. Accomplishing much in prayer is when you are standing for neighbors, standing in love, standing for justice, and producing healing in this world. Prayer is the canvas that God paints his will and personhood upon, so if you're not praying, he's not painting. In time, what we most discover about prayer is it is not what they accomplish externally as much as what they accomplish internally that starts to knit in the calling he has for your life. Your prayers have healing and revelation to accomplish. Do you believe that? I referenced it earlier, and they're going to leave that point on the screen, but remember one another. And then that last part that I kind of glazed over, that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Verse 17, then it goes into how Elijah is our example. Elijah, a man of nature like ours who prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the year for three years and six months. 
Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Here's what's interesting. This is, if I'm, this, these two prayers are like not even anything related to the story. Why did he pray? Why did he pray for no rain? See, a lot of us, we look at this and we're like, wow, this guy was deep enough in God's word that like even nature like obeyed him. And I'm not saying that that's not true. But what I am saying is this. The Elijah reference of rain being withheld for three years and rains that return is found in 1 Kings 18 through verse 19. Was rather for his people to return to God. For evil kings to be overthrown. For the worship of false gods to be destroyed. And the drought and the rain that was brought about. This was James' play on what most knew of the story. However, the example he uses is not just two individual prayers of rain and no rain. It was rather, God, I will do whatever it takes to return your people to you, to destroy the idols that are not of you, and for people to see you more clearly. The reason the rain was withheld is because it got people's attention that they were doing something wrong and wondering, okay, if I'm doing something wrong, what is the right thing I should be doing? So Elijah's prayer, it's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. He stopped the rain. No, what he did is he said, I will not live a life in which my neighbors do not know God and experience his goodness or walk in sin. I will not be content with a nation that was created to be close to God or a people that was created to be close to God, to be far from God, choosing the wrong way of living, which in that's... So rain was a product of the internal frustration. Or should I say this? Rain was the product of a heart that wanted healing and a heart that wanted revelation for people. And I say this to you today because the prayer that accomplishes much is one that seeks healing for those around them and revelation for those in this world. Because Elijah's prayer wasn't, and for some of us, sure, maybe. But you have a great invitation you are invited into for your prayers to be effective. And that invitation is this. Will they heal and will they reveal? Because, man, a lot of us, what we're focused on with prayer is what God hasn't done, what we wish God would do, what God we need more of, all in hopes of just this superficial, consumeristic, and borderline. Who I am as a believer is one who prays and believes for healing and looks and prays and stands in hopes that you would be revealed. Healing and revealing. That is why the reigns wanted people to be healed in the image of God and revealed in the relationship they were supposed to possess in God and got enough righteous discernment to tell the skies to close. That's some faith and that's effective prayer. And I want to say this to you today. If you want an effective prayer life, it better revolve around healing and revealing. Not just people around you, but healing in your heart and deeper revelation of God inside of you so that you can bring healing and revealing to those around you. Sometimes we pray for the world to experience this healing and revealing, not knowing that it's actually you, God wants to experience it. My final point is this. 
Gosh, I'm so good at time today. It's incredible. I like that. When we accept Jesus into our heart, our lives start bending toward finding the lost and telling them they can be found. Our kingdom character is bankrupt if we cannot remember the last time we tried to bring our light into someone's darkness through being a healing presence and revelation of God's love. We are the mission of God on this earth outside of these doors that says we don't have to accept a life of death and that sin does not have the final say. The enemy wants you to stop trying. You're a messenger as long as you have breath inside of you. How are you with the strays? You know what's interesting is you can kind of break down this passage and say, okay, well, it talks about the brother and the brethren, okay? So it's like, okay, return the brethren back to God, so let's pursue the church people who've backslidden and make them more holy. And actually, when you look at the original language, is stray was not the word that was their ways, or error in their ways, or make bad decisions in their ways. And so to pursue restoration was to pursue those who had only known wrong choices in hopes that in returning to God, they would know the righteousness they were created to live in. Righteousness is right standing with God, choosing the things of him over the things of this fallen world. But what I want to talk about in my final moments today is this. I believe for a lot of us, what we don't realize or what we look for is this All these incredible examples are the easiest way that we could be a light in the darkness. What is the four-point bullet, the perfect prayer that people respond to that immediately their lights are illuminated in them and then they become as light as the sun and then the world is perfect because we're all saved? But I want to say this, see, it's not that easy. See, being a light in the darkness is not just you flipping on your light and turning it off when you don't feel like it. It's rather you pursuing people around you who you know are in darkness and hoping through your healing and revealing that they'll see light. Worship is so uncommon that actually if you live it properly, you're just going to attract people. I'm sorry, you are. Why? Because what people in Christianity and the church in Western America think light is, is fear and divisive and not hopeful and not joyful and not happy and dogmatic and religious and not really living it. But man, we can talk about it. And and all of a sudden, the reason people don't want any of the light is because it ain't light, but we're trying to tell them it is. See, to be revealing who has the the ability to transmit the fruits of the spirit that is inside of us, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness. If, If we're going to be that light, it doesn't come down to, okay, how many, if I do a live stream and preach on it, how many conversions or how many people can I really get to buy into the gospel? No, what environments are you interacting with and pursuing that you know are dark and you are believing that through your, that they'll turn, return, that they'll no longer err in their ways. You know, I say this today because I think, I can stand up here and give you story after story after story of God doing incredible things in which I've spoke to people and had cool conversions and all that outside of these walls. But in the last week, really the last two weeks, it's kind of funny because I've met two guys that I really tried hard to bring my light into their life. And now the doors are closed. They just stopped responding. (laughs) And whether you believe it or not, I'm a persistent person. If I know you're in darkness, I'm going to be bringing light every single opportunity I get. 
But what's sad about that, I think, a lot of the times is that we think that if people reject our light, that they reject us. Or rather that the darkness is too dark, let's just focus on being our light. And I find it fascinating, James' entire book is all about this holy life and this holy existence and this holy way of doing things and, and choices and, and decisions and the tongue and these very few do we see him, all right, now go be the gospel and be the great commission. But at the very end, in his last words, Don't forget to go after those who are erring in their ways and return them to what they're created to be. And I challenge you today, see there was a revelation that I had this week, that the enemy has been carefully trying to change the message of Jesus into a message people want him to do so through our collective silence. Silence of a life that thinks there's a bare minimum Christian involvement and if we hit that we're fine. We are not fine. The church no longer is the place lost people go. And that actually might be a good thing. Challenging us to be what we thought the church would always be. I have been exhausted personally by what everyone thinks I should be doing. Christians, we all have a part to play in being the messengers of the gospel in this world. You know, James's final thoughts, yeah, there's a blessing and compassion and mercy for those who are faithful and those who are unwavering. And yes, if we live like Elijah, we can have a prayer life that accomplishes much through our healing and revealing practices and disciplines. If God heal my heart and heal the hearts around me, reveal more of you in my heart. And I, and I promise I'll reveal more in the hearts around me. But this last part How often have we prioritized the darkness, not as, oh, that's darkness, but, oh, you brought that darkness to me so I can show the light of you. See, that's what happens in my life right now. I want to be really frank with you. Not because I'm up here preaching, but rather if there is immense darkness that crosses my path, it is always, I know it's God saying, Micah, here you go. Here you go. And I may not win every single time, and by win, that's a terrible term to use, but it's the truth. It may not get path, it's going to be confronted with my light. And I challenge every person in here, if you have light in your heart, but it does not confront darkness in your path, you don't have much light. And in all honesty, that light won't last long. Your light must confront darkness directly in your path. And that's why most of Jesus' miracles we see are just him on the way to do stuff. Jesus isn't this like, go out and knock on doors, do the stuff. It's rather we live a light in which we take ownership of the light we have that has been revealed to us and healed us that then sees the darkness of other people and says, I have something that will heal and I have something that will reveal. My last thought for you today is this. The Hebrew word for breath is the term a ruach. It's breath, it's the word life and spirit. All three of those words in the Old Testament, if they're written in Hebrew, are the word ruach. I say that to you today as a reminder that the breath inside of you is the reminder of the spirit and the life you are called to bring to this earth. 
that when you are breathing in, when you are ruach, there is life and spirit inside of that breath. And I encourage you today, may you never forget that that reminder of just breath inside of your lungs is a reminder that there would be a life and a spirit in you. Would you stand to your feet today? In closing, um, we have just a practice of solitude in which we just kind of sit in the presence of God for a few minutes before we worship with one final song. I can't even remember the last time we were silent, and that's why we practice this. I believe that the, the, the be still and know I'm God is a practical challenge to us as believers. What does it mean to be still and know that he's God? Is It's cr- to create a stillness in our spirits and souls in which he communes with us. So today, whatever that looks like related to this message or related to what you're feeling, maybe it's God, man, would you heal and reveal me? God, would you give me cast an unwavering spirit that stays the course? Whatever that is for you or just God, I repent of this week and I need some help. I don't know what that is, but let's, before we worship one final time this morning and recite the Lord's prayer before that, I want to encourage you to take about 30 or 45 seconds and be still. against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us 